This is, of course, picking up immediately after where we left off last time we were in 1 Samuel, finishing at the end of chapter 23. So 1 Samuel, chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. This is what we read there. Now it happened, when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, This is a day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face down to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm. Look, this day your eyes have seen that the the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And let the, Lord avenge, let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As a proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has a king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dog, a dead dog, a flea? Therefore, let the Lord judge, be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home But David and his men went up to the stronghold. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we 
thank you for this portion of your word that we have read this morning. And as we come to study it together now, we pray that you would work in each one of us. We pray that your spirit might enable us to see the wonderful truths that you are teaching us even today from this historical narrative that, that took place so long ago. We pray that we might grow together through our study of your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, having read that, I'm sure those of you who have been with us for quite a while now are aware that we're, we're picking up the narrative of 1 Samuel immediately after where we left off last time. But it has been a few weeks uh, since we were here in 1 Samuel previously. And when we finish chapter 23, we, we, we work through this chapter, the, 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 the pressure that Saul is mounting on David continued to rise and rise and rise through that chapter until at the very end of it, it looked like it was game over for David. David and his men were travelling down one side of a mountain. Saul and his men were travelling down the other side. The mountain's running out. Saul's men are beginning to encircle David and his troops. It looked like it was over. But then Saul had a messenger come to him and say that the Philistines were attacking. And despite us learning in chapter 22 that, that the desire of Saul's heart was to go and find and kill David... He knew that he had to deal with the Philistines. So he went, he, he followed after them. And in that provision, we see God amazingly looking after his servant, David. Chapter 24, of course, has Saul back on the hunt for David. Now, before we get too stuck into the passage for today, just a, a quick note about chapters 24, 25 and 26 of this book. They're described as, uh, by Darrell Davis as being like the mozzarella cheese that you put on a, on a pizza. You try to take one piece out and the cheese still manages to stick the other bits together. It's worth looking at each chapter on its own, but there is a strong degree of connectedness between each of these chapters we see here. So keep that in mind. Uh, we, we see that, I think, most strongly between chapters 24 and 26, but the themes of cutting and cutting off and lifting hands against people do continue throughout these four chapters together. So keep that in mind, they're very closely interlinked. So how are we going to handle chapter 24 though? Well, firstly, we're going to look in the first seven verses of this. And we have this question of the, the opportune moment. As you guys might know, back when I could move properly, I, I used to play a fair bit of soccer. Now, when you're on the, the smaller field in junior grades, you, you run around, it's not much strategy going on there. You've got a short game, not much space to cover. It's just run as hard as you can, kick the ball as far as you can, and that's a good game. But when you get onto the larger field, the full-size field, you realise that there's a lot of ground to cover. And you realise that there's you know, a lot of time for that game. 90 minutes is a long time to be running around. You, you can't just sprint the whole time. Your body simply cannot handle it. You play hard, but you also have to play smart. So how you do that is you begin to construct long sequences of passes, which might look really boring to people sometimes. Oh, when are they going to do something exciting with the ball here? But those are designed to draw an opposition player out of position. You find out who's going to move out of position, and you begin to move the ball closer to those areas of the field so that you can actually strike. You can make the most of an overlap of your numbers. But more often than not, it's impatience that brings this unstuck. Someone thinks that the opportune moment is there and nobody else thinks the opportune moment's there. You're not on the same wavelength. 
Impatience can bring it all unstuck. Now, I'm not saying what we see in 1 Samuel is a game, but a similar sort of thing going on here. And David certainly hasn't been playing anything resembling an offensive game. He hasn't had possession of the soccer ball, so to speak. But what we see in these first seven verses of chapter 24, an opposition player drawn out of position. There is an opening. There is an opportunity here to crack the game wide open, to turn things around completely. At some point, Saul decided he needed to have a little bit of privacy from his 3,000 men and he went into a cave. Uh, the, the New King James Version puts it very politely when it says he went into the cave to attend to his needs. Very polite way of putting it. Uh, other translations like the ESV say he was relieving himself. So he goes into this cave and what Saul and his 3,000 men don't know is that David and his men are hiding in this exact same cave. They're hiding in the recesses of the cave and at least one of the men, David says later on in the chapter, someone told me, but we see it seems to be more than just one person. They see opportunity. They see a chance to strike. They have a chance, probably the best chance they'll ever have of having a crack at Saul. Saul is in this cave alone. He is unguarded. He is unaware. He is defenseless. Saul has been chasing them, filled with murderous intent to remove David from the scene, and now they can strike at him. David, get him. This is your moment. Remove this threat to your life. Remove this threat to our life. We can do good things here, and they frame it spiritually. They frame it spiritually when they say this to David. They say, this is a day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Now, we haven't heard God say that to David about Saul, have we? We haven't heard God say that to David about Saul. But what we have seen very similar to that is back in chapter 23... When David goes off to save the city of Keilah, he goes off and the Lord told him to go that day and the Lord would deliver his enemies into his hand. Now, perhaps David's men are just misinterpreting what was said in chapter 23, that in every situation, God is going to deliver your enemies into your hand, David, at some point in time. And right now, Saul is here, he is in your hands, go and kill him. Maybe there's something else they're picking this up from. Maybe they're just trying to spiritualize human desire to get rid of this threat to their lives. We don't know. We can't say exactly. But they're looking, they see an opportunity, and they want to take it. Now, last week, my uncle Lindsay was preaching for us here, and he, he said something which I found quite, quite important. He said, we live by faith, not by sight. We don't always know for sure, and I'm paraphrasing him here, and I hope he doesn't mind. Uh, we, We don't always know for sure what God is doing, but we do live in the faith that God does work. Maybe this is simply David's men misunderstanding how God is working at the time. Tell David, get rid of him. Kill him. 
This is your chance to do what you want with Saul. You can imagine they would have been joyful, relieved when David gets up and he heads towards Saul at the back half of verse 4. Now, I don't know what they felt after David returned from Saul, but when David came back having just the corner of Saul's cloak in his hands, they were probably a little bit confused. That's really not what we meant, David. That wasn't the opportunity that we thought it was. You have missed the chance. What have you done? We, we don't know what the men felt, but we do see what David felt, though. He felt a level of remorse. We see him voice that he shouldn't have done this. We see him voice that he has lifted his hand, stretched out his hand against the Lord's anointed. And in verse 7, with those words, he had restrained his men, his servants, from attacking Saul. And that right there, that right there carries an incredible truth for us. David's faithfulness to God here in not going further, as questionable as how far he went may or may not be, it it, it serves an example to us. He is an example of what it is to be a follower of God. We see later on, David has received evil from Saul in response to the goodness that he has shown to Saul. This is David's chance to hit back. But even here, David does not give evil in response to Saul. He continues to give good, even a good at this point in time unknown to Saul. He showed mercy. He spared Saul's life. David did not allow himself to sin, and he did not tolerate those around him sinning and going against Saul either. As easy as it would have been. As much as human wisdom tells us today, just as it did back then, knock over any barrier in your path to success. If it's in your way, get rid of it. Remove it. Remove the obstacles. Remove the barriers. If it's against you, do what you have to do. Human wisdom says David would be right to kill Saul. David knew that the Lord expected better of him and all those who follow God And he did not indulge turning such thinking into actions. Now, the level of mistreatment that David has received from Saul is extreme, to say the least. But I'm sure as we consider our lives, there's been times where we have been mistreated, aren't there? And times where we have had an opportunity to strike back. That might have been receiving poor treatment from a boss at work. For kids, it might be from a teacher at school. A friend, a family member, whether close or distant. These people in our lives who just seem to keep piling up the list of evil and wrong things that they do against us. In the face of that, we are to continue to act as David did. And to turn the other cheek. As the book of Romans teaches us, we are not to repay evil with evil. But to repay others in kindness and goodness. See, in many ways, this is a small thing that David did. He took a 
piece of cloth from the corner of Saul's robe. It's small in so many ways, but there is such a profound example set for us there. As easy as it would be to often lift our hand and repay those people who do evil upon us with evil, this is not how the follower of God is to act. David restrained both himself and his men with his faithfulness to God. And then as we continue in the narrative, we get to verses 8 to 15. And we see the beginning of a a heart-to-heart conversation between David and Saul take place from here to the end of the chapter. Now in verses 8 to 15, it's primarily David talking to Saul. Then in verses 16 through to 22, it's Saul talking to David. As we come to these these verses here, we, we, we begin to see the possibility of reconciliation between David and Saul. David speaks to Saul as his father. Now, it's not a presumptuous thing. Remember, he's married to to one of Saul's daughters. And we see later on, uh, Saul refers to David as his son. There is a a familial language coming through here. The question of, of reconciliation comes up. Now, I don't really want to spoil what's to come in the later chapters, but having said that they sort of stick together like mozzarella cheese, you can't get grumpy at me for spoiling that it's not proper reconciliation. Chapter 26 in particular shows us it doesn't quite reach that point. And then chapter 27, verse 1, where David says, Saul is definitely going to try and kill me. We see it doesn't quite reach full reconciliation. That said, this is still a really, really positive interaction that takes place. David starts it, he follows Saul out of the cave. Now, if we thought that David just cutting the corner of Saul's robe was perhaps a tactically unwise thing to do and not making the most of a situation, this is perhaps his men thinking he is going to kill us all. Why would he expose himself now in daylight to Saul where he's got 3,000 men just outside the entrance of this cave? But David goes out. He follows Saul out of the cave and he speaks respectfully to Saul. Again, we've seen this before, but David is the the anointed future king. The anointed future king. He will be the next king of Israel, but he still speaks in humility and with respect to the one who God has on the throne at this point in time. He calls the man who has hunted him merciless, mercilessly the man who has made him homeless he calls this man he calls Saul his lord and his king and he bows down with his face to the ground he does not withhold any respect in talking to Saul this is amazing stuff we see here and and while David knows the truth of the words we've spoken by Christ in about 1500 or so years to to turn the other cheek what we saw before what we see and what David says to Saul is that it's entirely possible for Christians to turn the other cheek and still have a backbone. Christians are not to be spineless people. We are to have a backbone. He gets straight to the heart of what's going on with Saul. Saul, why are you listening to people who tell you that I want to harm you? 
If you want proof that I don't want to harm you, look here in my hand, the corner of your robe. Now you can almost imagine what Saul would have felt at that point. There, oh, I could have died. But this realization that Saul is not out, David is not out to harm Saul. He has evidence of what he could have done. He has evidence, hard, undeniable evidence that he could have killed Saul. He speaks wisely to Saul. He, he takes him to an ancient proverb, one full of truth, but not in scripture in this form. So it's likely that David is either paraphrasing what would be a parable or it's just a, a wise saying within the life of Israel that, Israel that wasn't inspired by God. As said, he says, wickedness brings forth wicked. Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. If you want to see more evidence for that being at its core very, very wise, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. Matthew 12, 36. I can give you these later if you're struggling to write them down. Uh, Matthew 15, 19 and Ezekiel 16, 44. Some of those are you will know them by their fruits. Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Now in Israel there are some encouraging young men, aren't there? Jonathan, who spoke with his father Saul with wisdom and previously curbed Saul's murderous intent against David. Now David, a young man still, speaking with tremendous wisdom. And while David doesn't say that he is perfect, in relation to this accusation, this charge against David that, that he wants to harm Saul, he speaks to Saul in such a, a convincing way that we see that none of these accusations can hold any water. They're as leaky as a sieve, each one of them. He completely dismantles these accusations in, in a way that shows tremendous integrity and underlying that remarkable faith in the Lord. And while it's not a whole heap right there in those verses in terms of this sort of behaviour, that should be encouraging to us. Because shouldn't come as a surprise to you, we're not perfect either. We know that. We're not perfect either. But David here shows us how when the opportunity presents itself, we might not only defend ourselves from false charges, but also turn the spotlight to God. He is talking to Saul, who is the king, the one who, who sits in judgment over all of Israel, and he says, let God judge between us. He knows that there is a higher authority than the one who sits on the throne. He shows backbone. He reveals spiritual truths. And there is something of a response to that by Saul, as we see in the later part of the chapter. But David reminds Saul of the Lord God Almighty. And he finds comfort in the fact that even if Saul's judgment is against him, God is for him. And that is truly a wonderful thing for all those who belong to God. Earthly judgments may stand against us, but if we are gods, we are safe forever. And then we, we come in the last few verses here, verses 16 to 22, to the second part of the heart to heart. A, a really curious speech from Saul in response to David. And, and as we come to that, we, 
we have to ask ourselves a question, is Saul's grief repentance? We have to answer this. Because as I said before, the language from Saul to David is no longer hostile, it's, it's family relationship again, it's family dynamics and seemingly healthy, accepting family dynamics going on here. He resumes his fatherly rather than hunter of prey relationship with David. So then verse 16. We see him being so impacted by the words that David speaks that he is brought to tears, that he weeps. We see in verse 17, Saul says to David, you're more righteous than I am. Verse 18, he acknowledges the mercy of David in sparing Saul's life. Verse 19, he continues on with that same theme of David's extension of mercy and basically says, no one else would have spared me the way that you did. Verses 20 to 21, you will surely be the next king. Please be gracious with my family. And in the end, David does swear to deal graciously with Saul's family according to Saul's request put there in verses 20 and 21. Saul, who's been so intent on on keeping David away from the throne, hunting him because he sees him as a threat to the throne, is now saying, you will be the next king. As we read that, it, it, it may sound to us as though after a long time of hardness, Saul is perhaps returning to, to live by the words of God. That he is committing himself here to, to aspiring to be like David, to, to have that sort of righteousness that David had, to pursue holiness, to no more lead Israel little by little away from God through his poor example. And as much as it looks like that, again, the mozzarella stuff of 24 to 26 tells us, no, it's not really what happens. He does return to seeking David's life. We rejoice in the reprieve that David and his men would have felt here. We rejoice that even if it didn't result in proper repentance, God has worked in this situation to at least bring about a break for his servant and his men. But Saul returns to seeking David's life. While the Spirit was working in David's favour, the Spirit of God wasn't working in Saul's heart. And no matter how much we might regret the sinful things that we've done, no matter how much we might regret the consequences of our sinful things, unless God works in our hearts, we will be left to repeat the same patterns that Saul does. Matthew Henry says, Saul speaks as one quite overcome with David's kindness. Then he says, many mourn for their sins who do not truly repent of them. Weep bitterly for them, yet continue in love and league with them. Sadly, Saul's grief is not repentance. And that's something that we need to be aware of because we see similar things in the world today. We shouldn't be aware of this so that we can watch people grieve for their sins and those times they grieve with them with a 
a cynical eye that distrusts that they could ever change. We need to be aware of this to be reminded that but for the grace of God, we are powerless to have saved ourselves. We are powerless to have turned from sin. And as evidence, as we see in our lives and the lives of people around us, of God working for salvation, that should lead us to pray that when people grieve over their sins, whether that be in response to our being able to speak of God uh, as David did or, or, or any other reason that we might pray sincerely for them, that we might pray that, that God would bring about true transformation, that, that God would give them a heart transplant in that spiritual sense where the, the hard heart of stone is removed and a living, beating heart is placed in the, 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 the spiritual bodies of people around us. Pray that God would work in lives, that those transplantational, I know that's not a word, but those transplantational types of changes might be, be evident and not just limit for a short period of time sin, but lead people closer and closer and closer to God in holiness. Sadly, we know many do not experience this. Many don't have this take place in their lives. Many do grieve for their sin and the consequences of it, but never turn to God. That is not grounds for us to not pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that the God who protected David against unimaginable odds over and over again might work in their hearts and minds. Pray that God who saves unworthy people like you and me might also save others from sin. Pray that God might work for the growth of his kingdom. We read in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, but pray that knees might bow willingly. Whether that be the knee of our boss, of our unbelieving family member who has continued to cause us heartache, of our teacher that we know, presidents, prime ministers, lord mayors, Kids at school, university students, lecturers, tutors, anyone. Pray that knees might bow and that God might receive glory and honour and praise. We, we read in scripture that God is able to do unimaginably more than we might ever ask or think. To pray boldly for the salvation of souls as we live confidently in the shadows of the cross. Know that no matter what might happen, we are to live for him, just as David did. That exposure of who we trust and exposure ourselves before the face of sinful men might seem costly. But live like David did, trusting God. And while it may be costly, 
know that as believers, we are God's and God is ours forever. And that he did something in our lives that we could not do for ourselves. He saved us when we could not. Let's remember that with thankfulness and live in confidence. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the tremendous example set before us here by David. We pray that we might live accordingly. We pray that we might not seek to to turn our hands against others for quick and easy gain, for convenience or for comfort. We pray that we would always be faithful to you. And we pray that whenever even the smallest opportunity presents itself for us to, to reveal to others what we know of you, may we take that with both hands and may you give us the words to speak in those times that you might be glorified. Lord God, help us to continually be thankful for the work you have done in us. You have saved us. We are yours and you are ours. And may we we rejoice in this forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.